Hey, coming up on the show today, we have legendary music producer and engineer Ron Nevison. Some of the legends he's worked with include Kiss, The Who, Led Zeppelin, Ozzy Osbourne, Heat, Survivor, Heat, Heart is what I meant, Damn Yankees, Vince Neil, Firehouse, Bad Company. The list goes on and on and on. He's also worked with legendary producer of his own right, Mike Klink, before that guy went on to work with Guns N' Roses. He's got tons of great stories from an amazing career. Stick around. There's so much to go over, but I, I want to just go over your whole career, if we can, in about an hour. Um, I mean, you start as a singer, right? You start in a choir, and then and then you're a backup singer. Is that how it started, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, my teacher, my third grade teacher, told my mom that I had uh, uh, art, artistic kind of talent to send me to art school. Uh, so I went to Temple University uh, called the Tyler School of Fine Arts in Philly, where I grew up. Okay. And uh, I did a semester on Saturdays um, uh, drawing, and I heard them in the next room. I heard them singing, and I so I kind of graduated to the choir. And I became a soloist uh, after a couple of years of soprano, because <laughs> I was like 11, you know. And uh, after by 12 or 13, I grew out of it, didn't want to wear robes anymore. And so, yeah, I was singing uh, in in like hallways and uh, in in the subway, kind of like terminals with my little band. And we did a couple of gigs. Uh, a band called the Dell Lords. That's <laughs> okay. So then, when do you start? Because then you start setting up PA systems for bands, and you kind of eventually become a roadie with Traffic and Derek and the Dominoes. So, how do you go from that to to roadie? Yeah, yeah, you know, I was. I decided I wanted to maybe be a a, uh, a concert promoter. So I was working at this at this shop in Philly uh, selling bell bottoms, and the guy that owned the store, we went in together. He put up the money, and I I promoted a, a Vanilla Fudge concert in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Hmm. And one of the parts, uh, the rider, I had to provide a sound system. I had to um, my daughter. Right? I had to um, uh, hire a sound system. So I hired the festival group sound system, local place in Philly. And um, uh, ended up the concert didn't work out <laughs> in terms of like I, we broke even. Mm. Uh, I got to made friends with Dave Hadler, the guy that ran the sound company, and he hired me. So then I started, that started my audio career. Went from singer to going out, Humping gear and eventually worked myself up to front of house uh, mixer. So, how did you initially get the thing for promoting Vanilla Fudge? Like, how did that come about? How did you? Well, it was like a head shop. We were in this, in this. We were in the in 1967 or 68. We were right in the the hub in Philly, right there in uh, downtown, where all the hippies were, and it was that time you know, uh, of a great time to be around. And we were, I was a musician and, uh, I, I, you know, I was looking for some way to get into the, I, I even considered being a manager. I was, uh, you know, I was going to go in a band. I was, I was looking for a way in and it just so happened that, uh, I got uh, dragged into this, uh, festival group, festival group. And I also did lighting for them too. Mm -hmm. I did lighting, I did sound, and then I started uh, doing big tours like Jefferson Airplane, uh, Dirk and the Dominoes, Traffic, the Steve Winwood band. And that gave me, especially the English aspect, you know, the Dirk and the Dominoes and Traffic. Uh, those bands uh, led to me going to England because I was in a, um, in a car with um, uh, Chris Blackwell, who owns Island Records. And I was complaining about, uh, you know, three years on the road or two years, whatever it was, uh, humping the gear and, you know, getting three, four hours of sleep a night, even though I was a young guy. I was saying, I can't do this too much longer. He says, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go into the studio and take what I've learned mixing and do it in the studio. He said, well, you can work for me, man. I really dig you you know, come to London and I'll put you in at Island Studios. 
So that's how I made the transformations from a live sound mixer to, you know, I started at the bottom level in the studio, but I knew a lot. I knew a lot about microphones. I knew a lot about uh, EQ and effects, a lot more than the average guy just walking in off the street at Island Studios. That's a pretty big jump, though, to go from living. Were you still living in Philly at the time to go to London? Yeah, it was, especially in 1970. Yeah. So, I mean, did you have like a girlfriend or family that you just said, I'm going to London? I mean, that's a, that's huge. It is. Yeah. I just decided to do it. This was like your dream. I had some friends though. I had the roadie friends from traffic and from Dirk and the dominoes. I was good buddies with uh, uh, the keyboard player from the Dirk and the dominoes. And uh, um, yeah. Uh, Because were you only making 35 bucks a week, uh, American money, making tea at the the beginning of all this, right? When you went to Island Studios? How did you find that out? I think you said it in an interview and I was just like... Yeah, 15 pounds a week I started. Uh, I don't know what that was, maybe 25 or $30. Yeah. Yeah, five, five pounds a week for the flat and 10 pounds a week for whatever else. But you were looking like forward. You knew that like if you had continued along this path in six, five, ten, whatever years that you would be, you knew where you wanted to go. It was an opportunity. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I did blow it there. I mean, I worked at Island Studios for a while, but I got fired. Uh, I got fired for doing an unauthorized session over a weekend. Um. Uh, yeah. I, so there was, I think it was Spooky Tooth or somebody, one of the bands that Island had, uh, their engineer got sick over a weekend. They called me up and I was a second engineer and I wasn't supposed to go in and do that without letting them know. Oh. They called me up. And I, I went, okay, yeah, it was an opportunity. So I didn't think I'd get fired. I thought they'd like go, hey, you're not supposed to do that. But no, hmm. they fired me. And Dang. So now, now I'm in London with no job. Now, but that, that this leads to a very important being in a, in a place where I, at this point, I had now kind of put in time at Island Studios and spent a couple of years mixing on the road. Uh, now uh, I answered an ad in Melody Maker magazine because I was jobless in London uh, about this company that I knew nothing about, but it was called Track Plan. And the Track Plan was owned by Pete Townsend and it was building studios for musicians. And I got that job. I got interviewed by a guy named John Alcock, who was a fellow producer engineer like myself and um uh my first project was to build a mobile studio mobile as they say in an airstream trailer and that ended up being ronnie lane's mobile sound lms still in use today Hmm. and uh that got called up for a bunch of gigs like when Pete Townsend uh, needed a, a control room because his studio wasn't finished to do the Quadrophenia album, he called up Ron. He said, get Nevison to bring the the, the uh, Airstream over here. We've got to start recording. So I started recording the Quadrophenia record. And um, when they moved into the studio, he liked what I was doing, so he kept me. Right. Wasn't, and also wasn't part of the story was that somebody was uh, sick or drunk or something didn't show up. And so they said, all right, why don't we'll just have you do the whole album? Uh, they had somebody that was, yeah, they had an engineer in mind for it. That was, I think drunk or something. Okay. And I don't, I'm not sure who that was, but uh, they got me to, you know, Pete wanted to do the, the Quadrophenia album and Quadrophonic sound. And there was not a quadraphonic studio in London, which requires all the quad panners and all the routing and all of that stuff and speaker system for quad. So uh, he built his own, but it wasn't ready. And he had to get started with recording quadraphenia. But the studio part was finished, but the control room with the console wasn't finished. So we just pulled up the Airstream outside, right outside the studio doors. And started recording. And yeah. when the console was ready, after two or three weeks, I just moved in there and continued. And then I, well, I, I worked, I did the Tommy film after that for The Who. 
So I, I did a couple of big projects for them. So and that's kind of your first big break in this. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So there's but two, it, two really big breaks there. The, the sitting with Chris Blackwell and having a job offer to yeah. get to London, then getting fired and answering the ad in Melody Maker. Those were uh, major breaks in my career. For sure. So is I mean, it must be somewhat surreal to watch The Who record. I mean, I know you've seen Derek and the Dominoes and you've seen all these other bands, you know, perform and stuff, but to watch the recording of that classic album, I mean, was that, that's gotta be pretty cool, right? Well, to watch anybody record, I was not experienced at all. You know, I had spent a very little time at Island Studios uh, as a second, a T-boy, as you say. Uh, actually, they call them tape ops. Okay. Tape operator. Yeah. But, and then uh, that one leads to the Led Zeppelin physical graffiti, right? Yeah. Well, they needed, they wanted, uh, you know, Zeppelin had this house they rented called Headley Grange, famous in rock lore. Uh, they had worked there previously with the Rolling Stones truck, the Rolling Stones mobile, uh, with Houses of the Holy and uh, other projects. So they, they knew what they wanted. They, they, they had been out there before. And we went out there uh, to record the what was would be physical graffiti. And John Paul Jones had some problems. He couldn't turn up, or he didn't turn up. And, and um, uh, Peter Grant, Zeppelin's manager, had signed uh, Paul Rogers and his band to do uh, some demos, I think. Or he signed them as a band. And it was Mick Ralphs and Paul Rogers, the, the guys who had become known as Bad Company, but they didn't have a name. It was just Paul Rogers' band. So we threw them into Headley Grange with me. And in 10 days, we did the Bad Co album. So that's how that worked out. And then I went back to do the physical graffiti album when Jonesy was ready to come into the back to the to the yeah. So with physical graffiti, see, somebody told me, I, I want to say, I think I could be wrong on this. It might've been, I had producer Steve Thompson on. I feel like he, it was him or somebody said that Led Zeppelin was not very good live, that it was all these studio tricks, especially with Jimmy Page and the guitar. Do you agree with that? Or was that, is that just, is that guy crazy? Crazy. <laughs> so he was amazing in studio. Like you're watching you know, him. In awe. You know, the thing that was amazing about them, there's a couple of amazing takeaways one was how John Bonham played Jimmy's riffs. He didn't just do time. He played the exact riff. You know, if you listen through to his Led Zeppelin stuff, he's listened to, he copped his riffs. That's what I think makes it so interesting. Uh, and he could do that because they were difficult, out of time, Sig time, crazy time signatures, you know, Jimmy, the genius guitar player that he was. The other thing, the take, other takeaway was that they really didn't pay much attention to sound or, you know, they were just, they never bugged me about getting like, you know, they were never up my ass about getting like perfect sounds. You know, they just played, they just loved playing and they knew what he wa they wanted. They rehearsed ahead of time. So there was no clicks involved. They just played. And um, uh, um, yeah, those are my two big takeaways from, from working with them. And uh, pretty amazing. Uh, and now I didn't know until I f finished uh, working out at Headley Grange. They finished. They went in and obviously did work uh, and, and mixing. On, on the album, uh, did the, the strings on Kashmir and stuff like that. Um, I do have an interesting uh, uh, little tidbit about Kashmir. Uh, when we recorded that track, I, I just had gotten an eventide phaser that day. And somebody told me it like sounded good on cymbals. So I only had the drums on two tracks, so only two microphones, uh, believe it or not, were used yeah. Uh, away from the drum kit, just two stereo pair. That's how the drums were recorded on that record. And I took one of them and put it into the phaser and recorded it on a third track and played it to them 
when we had the playback and they liked it and kept it. And so, you know, it was, uh, it was just a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It was just, I was just, an ex uh, uh, I was just experimenting. And they loved it. Thought out. Just, just worked out. One of those happy mistakes. Wow. I love the song too. Trample. Is it trampled underfoot? Is that, is that what it's called? Yeah. Trample. That song is, and the, the sound with that, the beginning, especially like that. Dun, 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 dun. That's so, that's I, and it sounds. That's a clavinet. Is that what that is? Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. He, yeah. He played what, what, what Jonesy would do is he would play uh, the clavinet a lot of times to get the feel on the drum tracks. And then we'd overdub the bass. Okay. So I think that particular song, because it starts out with that. I think that uh, that's the way we did that. But hey, that's 1970. So does when Robert Plant sings, does he do it like in one take or does he do multiple? Because, I mean, his vocals are just, nobody can duplicate that. He's one of the greatest rock singers of all time. Indeed. Indeed. I've been lucky to, I've been lucky to kind of, uh, work with uh, some great singers like Plant and Paul Rogers, for Christ's sake, uh, and Streisand and Mickey Thomas and and uh, Ann Wilson. You know, I, I, I really have uh, uh, had had a great career as far as uh, working with uh, the best singers. Yeah. So, but but Plant does he do it in one take typically, or how many does it take him a lot? Is he a perfectionist? You know, when I did those nine songs, I didn't even know that they were going to use tracks from Houses of the Holy and make it a mm. whole album. I just did the nine newest songs. Okay. I didn't do the final vocals, so I'm not sure mm. how we did that. Okay. So with that one and the, the three bad companies that you also engineered, now those got remastered later. So what? explain that process. Does, does that negate the work that you did or does it just enhance it? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Just a, it's, it's, you know, uh, remastering and remixing are two different things. Mm. Remastering, they send it to a, a mastering engineer and they, they use some, maybe these days, computer programs to change the EQ and all that. Remixing is where you get the original uh, audio tapes. Uh, some, you know, usually in those days it was all... 16 track or 24 track and actually physically remix it. And mm. so both of these things are done throughout the industry as, as time goes on, techniques get better, equipment gets better uh, and, and tastes change and how things sound. Um, yeah. No, that makes I, sense. I so that I, I talked to Pete Townsend about, uh, oh, it's probably about eight or 10 years ago now when the 40th anniversary of Quadrophenia came out. And he sent me a, uh, a 40th anniversary package that they had done, um, a vinyl package. And he told me they used all the original mixes that he and I did. Pete and I did the mixing together uh, at his studio uh, in Goring, which is out, uh, like a bungalow outside of London. Wow. So then your first producer credit is the Thin Lizzy one, right? Nightlife? Is that the first producing credit? And you're well, kind of... I did one before that called Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers that I had done with the Airstream in a in a barn in Cornwall. It was a pub band signed to Cosmo oh. Records. But yeah, Nightlife uh, with Thin Lizzy is one of the first uh, ones that I did while I was still in London. Yeah. And you're kind of, you thought the production, you did a good job, but you wish you could redo the mixing. Yeah. Is that the problem? Yeah. Yeah. Is it, and the band felt the same way? Oh, I don't know. Mm. I, I Listening to it now, I go, I, I, you know, sometimes I listen to stuff, I go, yeah. Sometimes I listen to stuff, I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And then so the, the UFO. We can do it better, you know. Yeah. The UFO Strangers in the Night, that's another big one. Um, now, that's a live album, but I did hear you say that two songs were actually recorded in studio, and there was some disagreement with uh, uh, the guitarist, Michael Shanker, because he wanted it to be more uh, produced, and you wanted it more of a live feel. Isn't that right? You know, I don't remember that part. Actually, to tell you the truth, I've read things like that, too. I do know that, you know, it's a live album with a band like that is very difficult 
especially when you have songs that are like 13 minutes long, like Rock Bottom, and you have a 20-minute side. We're talking about, this is 1977. We're talking about vinyl. This is before CDs. And so you can't do the set as the set, you know, would normally be. You have to you have to figure out where am I going to put something like rock bottom or, or or love to love, which are like, you know, so long. And so uh, it, there's no way I could we could do an album that was listenable on a single final. So I talked Chrysalis into doing a double album. And uh, it was my judgment that uh, there was a couple of songs short of the performance wise. So we just went in and uh, we did them in the studio. Just threw them in there with, uh, you know, I, I didn't. The biggest venue on that uh, album was, I think, um, Chicago Amphitheater. UFO had a huge following in Chicago. But I think I used most of the recording from like Columbus or Youngstown or something like that. And, but I used all the, all the audience from Chicago. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was using the audience anyway. I could, so I used the audience from the record plant studio or, you know, I used the audience on the record plant tracks. I used the same drums and same microphones and the same everything. So, yeah. Yeah. And so Michael must not have been that mad because he had you produce his uh, solo album, the 1981 Michael Shanker group. So what was it like working with him? Because I had the basis of, of U, the current version of UFO, and he said there's no interest in reconnecting with Michael. They don't want him in the band. Is is there some sort of – was he difficult to work with or something? Or what, what's your take on that? Oh, boy. You know, um, Michael Michael was – you know, it was an English rock band with a German guitar player, and there was a little bit of friction there, left over from the war even, I think. <laughs> really? Honestly. Well, okay. they made fun of each other, and Michael didn't like that. Now, Michael wrote these really thematic, episodic things, but they weren't, they were just themes. They weren't chopped up into a song. And so, one of the things that I had to do, because they didn't rehearse together, he'd turn up with these epic, great, wonderful pieces of music, uh, but they weren't songs. Hmm. And so I'd chop them up and Phil Mogg would take would take them the whole album to write the lyrics. It was like we're getting to the end. Where are their lyrics? Now, as, as a producer, it's tough to do an album with songs. and You don't know what they're about. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's nice to have the lyrics. Right. Right. So uh, that was one thing. But. He was he was quirky, Michael. He was such a genius. He, you know, the uh, um, I had no no issues working with Michael. We loved it working together. Uh, I did I did the two studio albums, Obsession and Lights Out. Then I did the the live album, uh, Strangers in the Night, which when I was mixing that album at the record plant in L.A. I went next door to to have lunch at this French restaurant, and they were playing "Doobie Doobie Doo," you know, "Stranger in the Night." Frank Sinatra, yeah, yeah. There, Frank Sinatra was on the, uh, I, I, and I was listening to it while I was eating lunch, and I went, "That would be a great name for this album, UFO Strangers in the Night." So that band loved that. Just, That's awesome. Yeah. So, so then you go, and I did so three. I did that, and then I did two Shanker solo records. Right. Then I did another UFO record. So I've done six records with Shanker. Yeah. So he must have appreciated your production skills for sure. He brought me to uh, in mid nineties. He brought me to Phoenix, and I rented a place uh, in Scottsdale and rented a studio, and um, he had this. I can't think it was. The Walk on Water album. That was pretty cool. So okay. Mid-90s. That's the last time I worked with them, I think. Okay. I, I did a, another UFO album in L.A. Uh, can't remember the name of that. Yeah, you worked with them a lot. I did. Yeah, six six records. Yeah. yeah. They have kind of a cult following. 
I know like Eddie Trunk is a big fan and he's kind of yeah. uh, championed them uh, uh, as a, one of the greatest rock bands. He's a he's huge fan. Yeah, yeah, big fan. Yeah. yeah. So then you do some of the the pop stuff like Jefferson Starship or and uh, or you know I, I can't remember. Did you do all three incarnations? Did you Airplane Starship and Jefferson Starship or? Yeah. Well, I did. I did the Airplane. Well, here's an interesting story. Uh, you know, I was doing one of the tours that I did when I was with Festival Group uh, as the sound man. One of the tours that I did, I, I did a couple of tours with Jefferson Airplane. So, and I actually mixed their sound at Woodstock. So wow. I was on tour with them, um, two tours, three tours in 68, 69. Um, I got a call in 79. My manager said that uh, they've got a new singer, Mickey Thomas from Fooled Around and Fell in Love fame. And I said, oh, great. And so I went up to see them. I actually saw Santana the same day. They were looking for a producer too. But I ended up going with uh, the Starship. Uh, they had Ainsley Dunbar, new drummer, and Mickey was just, it wasn't the Starship of old. It wasn't, certainly wasn't the airplane. And they had that song, Jane. And um, yeah, so it was a new beginning for them. And uh, I ended up doing uh, three records with them in the Bay Area uh, over, the yeah. next, over the next three years or so. But, Did you like? But I, I, have to, I have to make a make a point that that I was afraid when I went up there that they wouldn't want to hire their sound guy to be their producer. Right? There, this you know this famous guy is coming up now. that's done all these records, and so I didn't tell them, and they didn't recognize me because oh. I didn't have a beard and all of that. But somewhere like in the second or the third records, I'm sitting around with the roadies and they're going, uh, you're from Philly, right? And I went, yeah. Oh, you were on tour with us, weren't you? <laughs> it took them that long to remember yeah. that? A couple of three years. Yeah. That's funny. I just didn't mention it and they didn't mention it. That happened to me too uh, with, uh, in 1985, uh, I got a call to do Joe Cocker. And I was the I was just the mixer for Mad Dogs and Englishman tour in '69 or '68, whenever that was. And so, but I didn't have to worry about. Joe didn't remember anything, hmm. you know. Yeah. So, so do you like the the popular stuff like that, like the the Starship and uh, Survivor, and then the, the albums you did with Heart were more poppy, or do you like the more hard rocking stuff, like you did the Ozzy Osbourne and Kiss and those kinds of things? You know, I, I don't know whether I what I liked and what I didn't like. I, I think that as a producer, you have to make sure that you you do an album that can fit the formats that you can get on the radio. You know, mm. there's certain certain rock songs uh, that will work with uh, album radio AOR, and uh, in those days, especially the '80s, there was CHR Contemporary Hit Record Hit Radio. Uh, CHR, which is really top 40 kind of radio. And uh, they were not going to play Kiss ever, although I tried. Um, uh, but they would play ballads. And so these dreams alone, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, if you get a, a, a hit in those days um, uh, on AOR, you could have a gold record, you know, you could sell right. a million. If you get it on CHR, you've got two million. Yeah. So like with the Aussie one. So Aussie shot in the dark. Yeah. You had to talk them into doing that, right? I did. I had to talk them. Then they wanted to know where the follow-up was. And I laughed. I said, you kidding? Do you remember the conversation we had about this? You didn't want to do this one. How could I possibly sneak in a follow-up? But did you have other suggestions that you would have told them to follow it up with? I don't remember. Okay. But Phil Susanne played me this song, and he was the bass player in the group. I didn't have to look too far for this song. I thought it would be great, but they they didn't like it. Hmm. Was he the, I talked to Mitchell. Did you think he was the 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 was he the main songwriter of that album then, or did he write most of the songs? Or you know, because I know it says like Ozzy and Ozzy took credit for all of the songs all the time. You know. 
uh, how much he actually wrote, I wasn't party to because I wasn't there for the writing sessions. Mm. Uh, I just know that uh, uh, he always had great people. Obviously. He had during the album that I did, he had um, uh, Jakey Lee. Yeah. And he was fabulous. And he was a great guy. He did Didn't say, he want to work he did, at like... He did say to me he wanted to work at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to... Excuse me. I went, you know, the townhouse studios. We can't, we can't turn the whole thing over. Right. So you compromised and he came in at like 8 o'clock at night or something like that? Six. Work till six. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's like, that's early for him. Or <laughs> yeah. And he wasn't, you know, he was he was just into martial arts and stuff. He just was a night guy. Uh, Interesting. As, as a producer, you have to kind of like go with when people are going to be their most talented. But I, I couldn't go at midnight. You know, that was a bit too much. Yeah. So with the Kiss one, uh, the, there's a songwriting team of, you know, Paul and Gene. They kind of, do they write separately? Like Paul yeah. sends you... Uh, six songs, but you said that he had, you know, narrowed it down to these are the six best. Where Gene just sent you every, there was like twenty five songs. That's right. Yeah, Gene just sent, sends me everything he's done, and uh, and Paul had narrowed it down, and Paul wrote with other people. I think Gene did a little bit too. Uh, Paul wrote with, uh, you know, a lot of the, the hot hit writers, uh, and. Um, I had a great time with them. That was that was a terrific record, I think. Listening back to it, that's another one I wish I could remix. Mm. Because of the uh, the days of synth, it's a little bit, you know, too synth heavy. Uh, just as far as mixing goes, mm. I, would, I would have it rock more and uh, but but uh, we were trying we were trying to get them uh, on hit radio too, you know. Yeah. And so well, they wouldn't, you know, I don't think I don't. I, I thought no, the record company really messed that up. There was a song called "Reason to Live" that I thought was a hit smash. Really, it's on that record, and we couldn't get traction on it. Huh? That's interesting. Yeah. Like, so what happens to those demos? Like, I heard you say one of the songs Gene wrote was called "I Want to Put a Log in Your Fireplace," and I thought that was hilarious. And I'm trying to yeah, YouTube yeah. like Kiss demo. Yeah, yeah. I can't find it. Oh well, who knows what happens? Yeah. To this. Yeah. No. I. I. I yeah. But that's rock and roll, you know. Because there's there's some Kiss fans that I mean they will like pay money for Gene Simmons' blog. I mean they yeah. let alone a demo song that he did like that. Like they're so yeah, into Kiss that Army, stuff. Kiss Army is really you know uh, the Kiss Army has had mostly negative uh, reviews of of Crazy Nights album. But uh, they still play the song Crazy like, Nights, right? Yeah, it's just like uh, you know. There's certain things that happen, like when when Dylan went electric. <laughs> it sounds it seemed preposterous now, but you know, add a synth to Kiss was not something that I think that's part of it. You know, yeah, everyone was using synth in the eighties. Uh, that was just that's what it was, the way it was. Yeah. So I had uh, Key Marcello from Europe on my show, and he was telling me the story about how you guys had this the album Out of This World that you brought him this song by Diane Warren called Look Away. And he's like, he's so excited. He's like, guys, look at this song. It's called Look Away. It's Diane. We got a Diane Warren song. And um, who was it? That, was it the singer or somebody else said, or I think it was John, the other guitarist said, no, we're not a fucking cover band. And so they turned it down. And then it went on to be this massive that's hit not, for Chicago. No, no, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, that's not true? No. I'll tell you the, the, the truth of it. Okay. I was going to London. I was given two Diane Warren songs to, that Chicago had given me to do with them. Okay. I never offered those songs to Europe. I was on my way to I was on my way to London to do the uh, to do the Out of This World album, and uh, I played them those songs. But I never suggested they weren't my songs to give. I never oh. suggested. I went back after that. And cut those songs with Chicago, and they became hits, both of them. So Key was just confused then. Yeah, he doesn't remember. Oh, sh yeah, shit. He, was, okay. he was impressed with the songs. Okay, but uh, oh, but do you think if he could have, if he would have, if he would have fought for them, doing outside songs, they didn't need outside songs. The, the the dilemma with Europe was they had a big hit with ba 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 ba. How do you yeah. follow, how do you follow that up? 
give me another give me another uh trumpet riff give me another horn riff yeah that's they the, needed a ballad I, th I think maybe if not uh look away maybe another ballad yeah, from i mean we st i still we still i still there's a lot of there's ballads on that record and the song superstitious did fairly well it didn't do what uh final countdown did but yeah it's a great album and there's wonderful i mean it was a great record i think underrated for sure yeah 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 so how do those songs like the diane warren song how do those songs by other songwriters get picked for albums? Is, is there a bidding war or competition or, or does the songwriter say, I want this to go to Chicago or how does that work? Well, you know, as a producer, a hit producer, especially you, you are a conduit for all of these songwriters. Uh, you know, they, it passes through me, you, you know, either I find the songs or the record company, you know, in the case of like heart, I, I sat with uh, uh, Don Grierson, who's the head of A&R Capital, and he had What About Love, right? Uh, which is a great song. Yeah. And uh, he also had he also was having hits with Tina Turner, and he had this song called If Looks Could Kill. And it was like a dance tune. If Looks Could Kill. And I, and I thought lyrically, If Looks Could Kill you'd be lying on the floor you'd be begging me please don't hurt me no more i thought that would be great for ann wilson as a, a visual right and so i grabbed that from him i said well, i want to do this with heart and and then i went and found these dreams for them and alone and i want you so bad and some other songs and, and uh along mix those in with the songs that they wrote so you know finding outside songs is Sometimes uh, uh, just I I got inundated with so many songs in the '80s that I couldn't really listen to them all. So I only listened when I was had an artist in mind. You know, I was looking for something, trying to fill a gap for an artist. Yeah, interesting. Um, so because I, I, otherwise I'd miss it, you know, or I'd forget about it. So okay. Uh, so I I had lots of stuff, and I just start. Uh, you know, it's first start uh, digging into known songwriters like like uh, uh, Diane, uh, uh, Holly, Bernie Toppin, Holly Knight, Bernie. Well, Bernie, mm -hmm. Bernie, and I were in the same uh, management company, so I, I knew mm -hmm. Bernie really well. Bernie's the one that handed me a cassette that had these dreams on it, but also on that cassette because I was going up to rehearse with Hart. On that cassette was We Built This City. And you said you hated that one, right? Yeah. I didn't like that song. I thought it was too pretentious. Hmm. Yeah. So with Ann Wilson, though, tell me about that because well, I had her on... These dreams they loved. Yeah, because I know she's not a huge fan of that era of the band, but I what was she like working with? Because I had her on the show and I just yeah. I just really liked her. I was like, gosh, she yeah. seems so humble. Was she was she humble even yeah, back in the day so. in her prime? Oh yeah, yeah. For, both of them were great. You know, um, I think that um, some of the songs I didn't agree with that were pushed by the record company, like nothing at all, is one of them that comes to mind. That I you know, but I did them. You know, I had a mandate to do them. The songs "What About Love," "These Dreams Alone," I think they 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 are still they still do those, and I think they're still great. Um, and they certainly built that era. They sold I don't know how many records, uh, ten million records or something like that, or maybe more. Uh, that's just in the U.S. between those two records. And yeah. So, so um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I like those songs. I know, I, I know she's not. They're they're not a huge fan of that era. But I, I mean, because that was when I grew up as a kid, and I was like, oh, these are, these are catchy, fun songs. You know, they they came out of the uh, they came out of the seventies with the Dreamboat Annie album. Yeah, which had that's a classic, great classic. You know, dun, do 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 do, crazy on you and Magic Man and Barracuda, and. You know, unfortunately, the guitar player, they, you know, they they were like at relationships with the guitar player and the drummer. 
And when they broke up, I think that took away a lot of the writing in the band for my, my, and uh, they started, that changed the band. And by 1982, uh, they had an album called Passion Works and it didn't do well. And Epic dropped them, if you can imagine Mm. that. They got dropped Epic. And they were a little bit, they needed to kind of like get perked back up. And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, they had to agree with uh, Don Groves and the the, uh, record company guy that if he signed them, they would have to agree to do uh, songs and agree on the producer. And they said yes, and that's how it all came down. But I don't think they ever, ever wanted to do anybody else's songs. Yeah, some people well, that makes more, sense. <clears throat> some artists are more agreeable to doing covers, like Rod Stewart, or like, you know, they're not so, but the girls are never happy with doing songs. Um, but I had a great time with them. Uh, <clears throat> and um, in fact, I have to tell you this. After the after the damn Yankees record, uh, and Nancy called me up. I had given him this song, "Want You So Bad," by the same writers that um, uh, uh, that did "Alone." Hmm. Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg, and uh, I think it was "Want You So Bad," and or it was another song like that, and. She called me up. She said, remember that song that, you know, I want to do that for this thing I'm doing with my boyfriend or husband. I wasn't quite sure if she had married uh, her boyfriend or husband at that time. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I gave that away to, I'm doing that with uh, Patty Smythe. Mm. And uh, they didn't like that. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I didn't do the next record. They got... Oh, that's, you know, that's okay. Well, let's get, what's his name to do the next record? Oh. There's no reason why I shouldn't do the third record that they did. Yeah, because those two that you did were, I mean, say what you will, but they're massive yeah. success. Yeah. So here you go. Them complaining about, them complaining about outside songs. And, and then when she wants to do an outside song that I played her, I said, well, now I'm doing it with somebody else after you turned it down. Go figure. Go figure. Yeah. Well, you mentioned damn Yankees. I got to talk about that because to me, I think those are two of the most yeah. underrated, brilliant rock records of, I know rock scene was changing a little bit, especially with the second album, but I love those records. So tell me about that because I had Ted Nugent on my show and that guy is just, I mean, he's so energetic and he's, I don't know what he's 70 years old. Was he bouncing off the walls in the studio too? I know you said something about how he, he didn't, he wasn't around for a lot of it, but when he was yeah. there, was he crazy? Well, Ted, Ted is very entertaining. Ted, yeah. <laughs> Ted is like a preacher on meth. <laughs> now, I have, to, I have to say that he, he, I don't want this to be misconstrued. He, he doesn't do drugs. He's not a drug. No, he, that's what's so and funny. It, yeah, how is he so energetic? Yeah. He, he, right. He is like that. Um, the, there is this backstory to damn Yankees. It's interesting. Uh, Don, uh, um, um, John Kaladner, kind of a yeah. famous a r guy, put with a beard. Yeah, put dude looks like yeah, a lady. Video. Right, right. He always in a white, white, white coat. Uh, has to, you know, it helped Aerosmith, and you know, he was, he was around the scene. He was working for Geffen, and he got Ted with together with Tommy Shaw and Jack Blades. He's the one that put that together. And they did those that were great. And it was a great mixture of, of talent. Uh, however, I'm trying to think of the name of the uh, president of Geffen Records at the time. It, it doesn't matter. He passed on the project. Hmm. So imagine after you know putting that together, he didn't want that, he didn't want to do it. Okay. Hmm. So it went to Warner Brothers, and Michael Austin called me up and said, get down here. I want you to hear this. And he played me the, I don't know, six or six songs that they had worked up. And I said, I want to do it. But at the same time, I was worried because I was, I had told um, uh, Night Rangers 
uh, manager that I would do a Night Ranger album. And I, I passed on it and left them hanging a couple of years earlier in 87, I think. Mm. Something like that. I did something else and I felt bad about it, but I can only do so many projects. And I, I, I felt bad about it. I thought that maybe Jack Blades would, you know, not be happy about that. Hold a grudge, but he didn't? No, he didn't. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, I'm sure that kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, he can't, I invited him over to my house and um, smoothed things over with him. And, uh, and um, we started getting down to work. Yeah, it was. He is one of the most brilliant songwriters, I think. Totally underrated. I mean, they, Night Ranger stuff that they do today, I listen, I go, this is a great song. I mean, obviously, they're not going to play it on the radio because whatever, writer. but... Hit writer. Him and Tommy Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, you had mentioned something about... Um, um, oh, gosh, I forget now. Uh, you know, originally, when you first started talking about Damn Yankees... Well, how Nugent would... You said Tommy would come would, in and be yeah, yeah. in the studio well, all day. And Nugent you know, would come Nugent, in and do his parts and leave. Ted was in Ted's world, what we called it. <laughs> in his bow hunting paradise. And, and, uh, uh, he uh, shot a bow on my in, podcast. In, he was shooting well, a bow yeah, on air. Well, look, <clears throat> Damn Yankees was Ted Nugent's Roadshow and Tommy Shaw and Jack Blade's studio album. That makes sense. Uh, and Ted Nugent used to shoot a bow and arrow on stage at Saddam Hussein. <laughs> they would bring out a thing of Saddam Hussein and he would fire and the crowd would go crazy. <clears throat> Ted hasn't changed much. No, I don't think I knew back then, though, like how political he, he was or I don't know if he's no. changed. No. Well, I, I, I certainly I love the guy. He's he's a really entertaining guy. But he's entertaining. Uh, his politics are not my politics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you look at the songs on the on the second damn Yankees record, you know, and I I, I have a, a platinum disc in my bathroom. So whenever I'm standing there at the toilet, I can read it. And the songs on there are Uprising, Don't Tread on Me. If you think about uh you know, yeah. That's he was writing about that stuff then. It's just that you know that's the demeaning. I I, I just thought it was rock and roll to him. It's more subtle back way, then. Way way different for him. Yeah yeah. Well, I love that, especially that second album. The production, the songwriting, all of it. The songs are it's just good. It's good stuff. I know. Great rock. It's easy to work with guys like that. Here's the thing that uh, that I'm getting back to about working with him, and then Ted's world. Uh, he just wanted to come and do everything at once. Now, when I first got this project, I went, wow, two, two, I love to have the two guitar player thing. Right. They play off each other. Well, you can't play off each other if they're not playing at the same time, can you? Yeah. And so um, uh, Tommy did most of the guitars and Ted was really, really important. He wrote the riff on Coming of Age, which is very cool. And mm -hmm. so he did some very important stuff. He didn't do as much as I would have liked him to because he chose not to. He okay. chose to stay. He came and did his his rhythm parts and then left. So mm -hmm. there's little other parts that crop up uh, that Tommy did all those little parts. When he came back to do the solo six weeks later, uh, uh, usually as a producer, you have to be ready with the record button to hit that button uh, because you might get the best solo that you'd ever gotten right then, first time. He, uh, I put, hit the hit the record button. He didn't remember the song. <laughs> he, he had to figure out what key it was in. He did no homework. <laughs> However, he's Ted fucking Nugent. So <laughs> he can go in and do that. And in a half yeah. an hour, he had a great solo. Uh. But yeah. that's the way he worked. He, you know, I can do that. I don't need to. I don't need to rehearse. I'm Ted Nugent. That's interesting. That's funny. And, and so, did you? Yeah, he did. He, he, so he, he can't complain about not having enough airtime on the album because he didn't put in the time. Right now, you didn't do the third album that never came out, did you? I did. No. Okay. Okay. What about now? This is the 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 one of you, I think one of your best albums. One of my favorite is the Vince Neil record. I think that's so uh, underrated. I loved. Crew, that was when I first started getting into music. 
I never get, I never, you know. I love that album. It's, I mean, yeah, it's not groundbreaking. I know it came out during grunge, but it was so fun. It was just a fun, good album, the guitar work. And I think he, I had Steve Stevens on and even he didn't even seem to be very thrilled about it. I was like, that's your best guitar work I've ever heard. He, he's shredding and it's got these lasers and all this stuff, but he doesn't seem very happy with it. I didn't, you know, I, I, I no one's ever asked me about that record. I, I, I thoroughly uh, agree that Nirvana uh, tanked it, you know, the fact that everybody was running up to Seattle and that all eyes were up up there with not just Nirvana, but Pearl Jam and, and Soundgarden and everybody else. Um, but um, but it, he had a great band. He had a great band and um, very cool songs. I had Tommy and Jack write a song for him. Two, I think, right? Uh, maybe two. Yeah, because they did the you're, you're invited, but your friend can't come and also can't right. change me. That's right. Wow. And yeah. also, did they do Sister of Pain, too? Maybe three yeah. songs. Yeah, maybe three. That's right. Yeah. right. yeah, that was a great, great sounding record. Yeah. yeah, the flamenco guitar on the edge is so cool. You know, because he also does the acoustic yeah, I, stuff. I have a guy like him and him not to recognize that as a great album is kind of strange. It is weird. So did I just wrote it off as, you know. It wasn't the time for that kind of record because I did another really good record uh, with John Wetton at the time, the singer for Asia, mm. right around 93 or 94 or 90, whatever it was. It didn't get any notice either. And I, and I just wrote those off as, as uh, uh, you know, the classic rock was not uh, in the mainstream anymore. Yeah, but I think the the fans, like a Vince fans, are are still hold that record near and dear. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. So at the time, did you ever, did you ever just like after recording go out with a with Vince for a beer? Did he ever spill the dirt on the crew stuff? Like what? Because there's just two different stories uh, to that whole saga. Not to what saga? Uh, to the Motley. You know, he said he was uh, fired, and then they said he quit. Oh, Did he ever uh, tell you his no, take on I, it? I don't know. I just know that uh, Tommy and Jack, Jack Blades, took Vince under his wing when he left Motley. That's how that Mem TV thing uh, came mm -hmm. about. You're invited. Your friends can't come. And, and um, um, yeah. Uh, and it was just a fun record. Uh, I remember uh, when we finished the tracks, we recorded at Rumbo uh, in L.A. We recorded the tracks. All of a sudden, uh, we had a little party at the end of the just the track recording, the drum recording. And in walks this stripper with, <laughs> with this big guy, like six foot ten inch guy holding a boom box. And. Uh, yeah. She started stripping and put with music. And after about a half hour, I decided to go home. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, about midnight, I get a call from the girl at the studio. Ron, somebody at the studio hit the fire alarm. Oh, God. <laughs> so they, had gotten, they had gotten out of hand, gotten crazy, and they were hitting fire alarms and and so I, I got chewed out for not being there for that, you know. Are you sometimes kind of like a babysitter as a producer yeah. with these rock stars? Well, I'm the guy that books the studios and has the relationships with the studios. And yeah, sometimes, you know, I remember uh, in Air Studios in London, uh, I did a Faces album, which never came out because they broke up. Hmm. But uh, I remember being called into into the office by none other than the Beatles producer and wanting to know why a bar was set up in the control room. You know, he was, he wanted to make sure that that didn't happen again. <laughs> so Rod Stewart set up a, a bar in this? The faces, you know, they're, they're just drinkers. Okay. But, so uh, who was the craziest? I mean, cause Keith Moon, John Bonham, Vince Neil, who's the craziest person to control the biggest partier of all the bands you worked with? All of them. Oh. <laughs> really? I, I can't, I can't really, you know, there's, you know, all of them partied hard at some point. Continually is continue. That's not a word. Continuously. I think, um, I'm not sure. Maybe Vince. 
Really? So even in 93, he was still, because like, remember they had kind of, Motley Crue had been sober for like a couple of years. I have to tell you that I had more trouble getting Steve Stevens to the studio than anybody else. Really? Yeah, because he was just late all the time. Yeah. I think he's sober now. I think he's been sober for like. Yeah, he was a little out of control, but he, he, he was still playing great. Sure. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was the cocaine that made him sound so crazy on that album. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's like looks back on it and I'm sure it was. Yeah. What about um this is another thing. I think this was amazing because we talk about these albums, the classic rock kind of dying. But in 1995, you made an album for Firehouse and you got them a not only top 40, but top 30 pop hit. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. Um yeah. Those guys were great. How did, it was the song I Live My Life for You. It, was, it actually hit number 26, which is, again, I think that's amazing in 1995 for a quote unquote hair band to have a, a radio friendly hit. How did you, did, was there, was there some magic you had to work on that song or was it just a great song that you just. You know, I'm so happy that you're asking about these 90s projects because I never <laughs> get asked about these 90s projects. These are my favorite. Like Vince or like, uh, <clears throat> like Firehouse or. Or, you know, a couple of years later, Meatloaf. I did a Meatloaf record uh, in 95. Uh, you know, I remember going down to Sarasota and rehearsing with the band. Then I brought them to L.A., I believe. And I'm not sure where I did the album, but I love those guys. Uh, uh, and, yeah, uh, um, I remember thinking that in those days, I had to dry things up a little bit from the reverb from the 80s. Everything was more in your face. So the mixing is quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but you know I, I didn't want didn't want to change the band and maybe sonically like I said listening back I would sonically like to have remixed Thin Lizzy and Kiss but uh, you know not change anything necessarily yeah so you got to tell me this about uh, Mike Klink. Now you kind of mentored him. I heard, I do. I was not aware of this. Now he obviously went on to be a massive producer for Guns and Roses and some other stuff. But how did you be, you start? Was it I Have the Tiger that or he produced that? Or how, tell me the story with him. How did, <laughs> I'll get a drink too here. It was just water, but hey. Well, here's the story um, that you should know. <clears throat> um. I was building, I built a studio for Ronnie, Ronnie Wood, who was just about to leave the Faces at his house in London. And the Faces were breaking up. And Warner's needed a, another album from the Faces. This is before Rod Stewart went solo. Hmm. And even though he had a solo album with Maggie May, which is a huge hit, that's one of the reasons why he wanted to break away from the band. Sure. And so, um, I built a studio for Woody and the record plant studios uh, were hired to, to record the tour that they were doing in the U S during that recording, uh, Ronnie Wood told the two owners of the record plant, Hey, why don't you come to London during the hiatus? Yeah. It's like, cause they recorded three weeks and there's a couple of weeks off and then another three weeks or something. So Gary Kelgren and, and, um, uh, um, Stone, Chris Stone, uh, came to London and I was doing a session at Woody's house, right? And they met me and they saw that I had done Led Zeppelin and The Who and Bad Company. And and, uh, this was 1975. And they offered me the job for chief engineer of the record plant. And uh, ultimately, I took it and went to L.A. and was kind of the overseer of the five studios, the three in LA and the two up in Sausalito. Mike Klink was a, a, an assistant engineer at that time at the record plant. Uh, maybe not then, but eventually he was. I mean, I'm not sure when I got there in 75, if he was working or not, he would remember. Uh, but uh, he started working at the record plant and, and, we started working together and I liked him and he liked me and, and I used him for like eight or eight albums or something. We went to Sausalito together. There's a lot of times I do pieces in LA and then go up to Sausalito with a, a, maybe like survivor. I cut the drums in LA and then 
go up there and do the overdubs because they had a house with the studio. So Clink ended up being, uh, I'm not sure I mentored him so much as he was my assistant engineer. Uh, and I even got my manager to, to kind of manage him. I'm not sure if that's what resulted in him getting the gig for Guns N' Roses, but mm. uh, certainly that changed his life. Yeah. Do you still keep in touch with him? Oh, yeah. I yeah. That, you guys fact, trade I stories? Remember, I was working with Hart or somebody in the big studio at, uh, at Rumbo, and he had those guys in the back in the smaller studio. And I remember meeting those guys and and thinking, good luck, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they, they were pretty crazy back in the day on that first. I mean, everybody was there was a lot of drugs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So, yeah. Guns and Roses. Yeah, wow. It's, it's just like so commonplace for you to just see all these bands and then some of them later just take off. I'm sure there was a lot that never did, but so many of them you probably saw. Yeah, you're thinking good luck with those guys and the album blows oh, up. You had another, no idea. Another guy that worked for me a bunch, a few albums, uh, Toby Wright, went on to work with Alice in Chains. And uh, uh, in fact, he has got, he's got a podcast. I did a, a session with him, a podcast. Cold. Which one's his call? I've listened to a few interviews. I'm uh, trying to remember. From... Uh, it's, I'm not sure it, if I heard it, that it one. You'd be right. It's right, right, the right stuff or something like that. Okay. Yeah, I might, I might have, might have heard that one. Now, I heard you say in one of the interview or multiple interviews, you you talk about this book. Is that what's the status with that? I haven't done anything. You know, COVID kind of stopped that in its track. So it was okay. Uh, and one of the reasons is everybody started writing books. Everybody was sitting on their butt. Yeah, and trying to stay away from uh, getting sick and uh, starting to think, oh, I, let me paint something or let me write something or let me record something. So I have to get back to it. It's it's from the early days to 1999. It goes right up to there. I haven't haven't uh, included anything, and I haven't included anything personal. It's just all career stuff at the moment. But yeah, I'm going to get back to it. Well, it's an amazing career. It's it's a great story. I just love too that it starts. You know, you just this guy making thirty five bucks an hour, and then you become one of the biggest producers in the world. It's, I love those kinds of stories. It's really neat and inspiring for people to hear that. I think whether it's they want to be a producer or anything, just yeah. You have any secrets to your success? Like, did you see that path later down the line? You're like, I'm going to be a huge producer. I have to say that. Uh, as an engineer, for instance, let's let's take the Bad Company album albums. Love those. I, I was an engineer. I get paid a hundred dollars a week. That's it. During that time, maybe two hundred a week, and I watched them make rake in millions over three albums. The third album, they couldn't even work in uh in england because they could only be there 63 days a year because of their tax issues that they oh. they didn't want to record in the u.s because um they didn't want to use up visa time because they were on tour all right and so they decided to record in the south of france they rented a big villa and the ronnie lane wouldn't let them take the Airstream. The first two albums I had done with an Airstream, with the Airstream thing that we talked about. Previously. Yeah. So I got the Rolling Stones mobile truck to come over. And uh, the reason I'm bringing all that up is, you know, it kind of, I started thinking, man, I need to be a royalty artist here. You know, I'm, you know, right in the middle of all this. And so, you know, um, started producing and became a royalty artist. And that's how you make money in this business. Not sitting there as an engineer, getting an hourly or weekly wage. Right. So you did see the future. You saw, I need to, I need to take this up a notch. Cause do some people just stay engineers? Yeah. Well, I guess if they're not aspiring or if they don't have the talent, I don't think that if, you know, it's, it's not, you can say you're going to be a producer, but you have to know what you're doing and, and you have to have hits and you have to kind of 
So, yeah. Well, it's great. Well, it was a lot of great stories. Anything else I missed? Any other crazy stories or gossip or dirt you want to spill there, on here? A couple of hours that we could do. <laughs> well, you'll have to come back when the book's out and uh, we can promote that. And that's been a lot of fun. That's been great. Yeah. Okay. I always end with a charity. Is there a charity you want to promote? Yeah. Um, Doctors Without Borders. Okay. Yeah. I'll put that. I've heard of that one. Yeah. I'll put the, the website. You know, I got involved with them during the Ebola um, times back in seven years ago or something. And yeah. So yeah. Doctors okay. Without Borders. I'll put that uh, website in the notes along with your, you, you have a website and people can contact you yeah, if they want to hire you or. Com. Yeah. Where they can hire me through sound better. I have a profile on sound better too. Okay. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. I love the stories. Good talking with you. All right. You too. Be in touch. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again to Ron Nevison. Check out his website for more information, or you can check all music for a list of his full credits. It's a pretty extensive list, and uh, we could definitely do a round two for this one. So I hope to read his book one day and have him back on the show. Uh, Make sure to support Ron, share this episode, or follow him on social media. Uh, Thank you for all your support of the guests. Uh, If you want to support me and my little show here, you can like, comment, share the episode. Listen to some of my other episodes, including the ones I mentioned, like Steve Stevens, Ann Wilson, and Ted Nugent. Um, Thank you so much for making it all the way through this episode. Have a great day and shoot for the moon. Shoot for the moon.